Welcome to the latest episode of Your Wealth with Gemma Dale, a podcast series designed to help you create, grow and protect your wealth. Hi and welcome to this episode of Your Wealth. I'm Gemma Dale, NABTRADE's Director of SMSF and Investor Behaviour. After spending months and months discussing the extraordinary swings in local and international markets, the economic effects of COVID and the outlook for investors, we're taking a bit of a different tack today. We're still talking about investing, but in this case about how to approach investing with a conscience. There are many different ways to do this and the topic of impacting and ethical investing is surprisingly complex. You can listen to the podcast I recorded with Simon O'Connor from the Responsible Investing Association of Australia to get a bit of an introduction if you're interested. But another approach is to use a professional manager where they donate their fees to charity rather than uh, keeping them. That's actually a thing and it's surprisingly easy to do. So today I'm joined by Louise Walsh, the CEO of Future Generation, who's going to talk to us about one way to do good while making money. Louise, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks so much, Gemma. Pleasure to be here. So Louise, talk to me about what Future Generation is and how you operate. Well, firstly, there's two companies um, and they're listed investment companies. Uh, They were founded by Jeff Wilson, the fairly prominent fund manager from Wilson Asset Management. And uh, the first one is for investors that are interested in investing in Australian equities or shares. And it's FGX is the code. And there's a sister company, FGG, which is for investors who are interested in investing in global equities. And we have investors who who invest in both, or there might be an investor that chooses to have a preference of one rather than the other. But very simply, Gemma, what we've done here is we've handpicked the very best leading boutique fund managers that we could find in Australia for the Australian company and globally for the globally company. And we've handpicked 12 of them for the global company, and we have 20 fund managers in the company for uh, the uh, Australian company. And what we've done is we've asked each of these managers to manage money for us pro bono. So as you said earlier, without charging their normal performance fee and without charging their normal management fee. Now those fees typically would be in the order of uh, a performance fee of on average about 15, 16% and a management fee I think is just over 1%. So I think it's about 1.1 or 1.2%, depending on the company. And the reason we've asked the managers to do this is that uh, each year, each company donates 1% of its assets each year to charity. So what we're talking about here very simply is an example of impact investing. And that's where what the, the companies both have a dual purpose. It's exactly the same model for each company, but one is global equities and one's Aussie equities. But what we're doing here is we're delivering investment returns for the investor or the shareholder. And very simply, um, they are delivering an increasing stream of fully frank dividends um, uh, to preserve shareholder capital and also to achieve capital growth. But as well as receiving those investment returns, in the same investment opportunity, there's this charitable social return. So what I would say up front is that the investor, the investor's investment returns are not compromised because we've got this charitable or social return going on in the one investment product or opportunity. So it's quite a unique model. Um, And FGX was founded and listed on the ASX in 2014. 
And based on the success of that IPO, where it was oversubscribed and we raised 200 million from investors, a lot of investors then said to us, look, would you consider doing a global equivalent? And literally a year later, uh, we went out, we raised uh, just over 300 million and uh, it was listed on the ASX uh, in September 15. Thank you. That's a great introduction. I was going to say, how did it get started? Um, so you've mentioned that Jeff Wilson was the founder. How did he get people on board to be part of this? Well, it's it's even earlier than that, Gemma. It's quite an interesting story about how it came about. I mean, just, in, just I'll fess up, uh, up front, we didn't invent it. What happened is it was about eight or nine years ago, Jeff uh, just happened to be on holidays in London and he was sitting in a hotel reading the Financial Times and he read about an, a new investment vehicle in London and it was called the Battle Against Cancer Investment Trust. And it was basically a listed investment company, fairly new in the UK. And a prominent hedge fund manager called Tom Henderson had founded it. And uh, he approached about a dozen top performing hedge fund managers in London. They were boutique managers. And he said to each of them, I'm going to go out and raise some capital, some initial capital from investors. But would each of you be prepared on an ongoing basis to manage some money in your main funds without charging any fees? And um, he thought, wow, what an interesting model. And Jeff's been involved in the nonprofit sector for a long while. Um, you know, he's also been involved in, in the philanthropy space in Australia for a long while as well. And he thought, you know, I'm going to interrogate Tom about how he set this up. And he, he said to himself on the plane on the way back to Sydney, you know, that's something that I'd love to do in Australia. And Jeff, being a fairly prominent and well-known fund manager, of course, knows his peers and his competitors. So um, when uh, he came knocking on their door in early 2014 and said, I'm looking to do this in Australia, would you think about agreeing to be part of this and not charging your normal fees. Um, they all said yes, because they said, wow, what a great way of making a contribution to the nonprofit sector and the, the, you know, the community sector in Australia. And also, if you think about it from a fund manager point of view, um, it's not like we were asking each of the individual fund managers to um, make a cash donation or a cash sponsorship to be part of this. We were asking, say, let's say a Magellan, which now has, what, over 100 billion under management, you know, by far our sort of biggest fund manager in Australia, and obviously they operate globally. Um, but from their point of view, I think they're managing about 12% of the portfolio in FGG, and they've been incredibly generous and they love being part of this. And when we approach them, to be honest, they love the fact that the charitable focus of the global company is on mental health. But to be honest, I, I'm not sure they even miss the fees. Um, you know, they're, they're so big these days and they're, they're, they're doing, you know, they're absolutely doing gangbusters. And, um, you know, they, they've, they've been very, very supportive since, um, you know, since we started FGG five years ago. That's a great story. I think you're correct. Magellan probably doesn't miss the fees. I think they're doing okay. But so, so let's get into the nitty gritty. I, I mean, it's fabulous, obviously, that Jeff had the connections to kind of get this started. But how do you choose which fund managers get to manage your clients' money? I mean, that's a really important decision. Absolutely. And it's really fundamental because if we don't have the right fund managers, Gemma, um, the best performing ones, and they have to be boutique. You know, we like managers that have 
skin in the game themselves. And, you know, even though Magellan is so big these days, they're still boutique um, because they're skin in the game personally um, by, by someone like a Hamish Douglas, um, who's one of the, the, the key shareholders. Um, but how we choose them first up is we, we have investment committees um, for both companies. Um, Jeff Wilson, uh, the founder and the director of both companies, he chairs the investment committee of FGX, the Australian Equities Company, and Kira Grant, um, who's a board member of FGG. She's, a, she's an ex-analyst at um, UBS and uh, currently a company director and also chairs some investment committees. Uh, she chairs the global company. We also have representation on those investment committees from someone like uh, John Coombe from JANA. So we had the top asset allocator in, in the country. We also have representation from uh, the top research houses, whether it's Morningstar, um, Zenith, um, Lonsec uh, and AMP. So we've got some serious expertise. And that investment committee is constantly um, on the lookout for new fund managers, should we need to um, add any in the future. Uh, their big job is to constantly review fund managers and we do remove fund managers from time to time. Just so you know, I think we've removed 12 fund managers over time in the six years across the two companies and we've actually added 10. And in fact, we're about to add an 11th um, at the end of this month, which is quite exciting. Now, there's, there's really two reasons we would exit um, a fund manager because it's a commonly asked question that we get. The first reason would be if there's consistent underperformance. Now, a fund manager can have a bad six, nine, 12 months. It does happen from time to time. But if it's it's consistent over a prolonged period of time, who knows, it could be a couple of years or whatever, it, that, that is when we may make a decision and we have done to remove a manager. The other reason we'll remove a manager is um, if key personnel leaves. Now, not always, um, but an instance would be when Peter Hall, who's the founder um, and chairman of Hunter Hall, who were one of our managers in FGG, when he left suddenly about, what, two, two years ago, um, the investment committee met straight away and we made a uh, decision straight away to um, exit that because we were concerned um, about that business and, you know, the viability and the performance numbers, et cetera, at that time. So, um, so that's sort of how it works. I mean, the investment committee meets quarterly, but it does meet more regularly when it's needed. So, for instance, in April this year, obviously, with all the volatility and the uncertainty uh, and the impact of COVID, um, we did an extra meeting and our investment committee members um, are constantly meeting with fund managers. If you think about, because we've got representation from these research houses with their day jobs, they are as well. Um, so we're constantly grilling fund managers about their performance and their business. And every fund, every uh, investment committee meeting, we typically have a fund manager come in. So the investment committee can drill and grill um, that particular fund manager um, about their performance and anything else that might be going on with the business. And it could be because it's, it, there might be underperformance, but it also could be the other way where maybe we think the performance is too good or we're sort of trying to work out why it's so good um, could be another reason too. I think that's really helpful. One of the uh, challenges that our investors always struggle with is it's one thing to choose your stocks or choose your portfolio and get in, but choosing when to exit is also quite challenging for people. So the fact that you have a process and a method of doing that, I think is encouraging. 
So one thing you and I discussed before we got on this call, and it's one that comes up every time we talk about uh, sort of ethical investing or trying to do good with your money. So I'd love to hear your explanation. You talk about impact investing. Many of our investors want to know about ethical investing. Could you explain the difference to your mind and then how you work with that? Yes. Well, look, firstly, um, it's important that we we do um, – call these an example of impact investing, and in fact, a leading example in Australia of impact investing. Um, impact investing can happen in equities, it can happen like we're doing, it can happen in property, it can happen in infrastructure. Um, but essentially with impact investing, the investor is investing in a product where um, they're being delivered investment returns or financial returns, but at the same time, um, they're also being delivered a social, a charitable or and or an environmental return as well. And in our case, we're particularly focused on the charitable or social return. And the important thing is that it doesn't mean that the investment return is compromised because there is this dual purpose and this charitable or social return. And sometimes in, investors or potential investors can think that how, how possibly could we achieve the two um, in the one product? And in our case, very simply, the, the investor, interesting enough, is not paying a performance fee, which, as I said earlier, might be, you know, 15 16%. Um, and instead of paying a 1% management fee, we actually donate it to charity. Um, but I think the other um, important thing here is that we, we don't promote or market this as 100% ethical investing. It's very close. What I would say is with the help of Lonsec, um, who provide a whole lot of look-through data for our investment committee for FGG, the global company, we know from looking at all that data, data and the companies that um, our fund managers invest in, it's 98.8% ESG aware. Now, what that means is from our point of view that, you know, the, the absolute no-nos are definitely out. Um, and I think the only um, baddie in there is there is some alcohol, which is why it's not 100%. Um, so we're close with the, um, the Australian company. We don't have the benefit of that look-through data um, from Lonsec uh, for the Australian company because they're not on our investment committee. But we're just talking to um, Zenith at the moment and hopefully they're going to provide that look-through data for us, um, you know, pro bono. But I think, um, you know, from, from, an, from an investor point of view, I think it's just important that um, people do understand the difference because you, you could have um, an impact investing product that is 100% ethical, um, but in our case it's very close to that. We actively encourage um, our, our managers to be 100% ethical. Um, we actually require them every six months to complete quite a detailed due diligence questionnaire questionnaire, which, has, which asks them all sorts of information about ESG. Um, and what we've noticed over time is that the, the ESG, um, uh, you know, answers are getting better. So what, what I think you're going to find is over time, say within 10, 10 years, I think your average fund manager is going to be 100% ethical. They're not these days, and I think it's because it's, there's not enough investor pressure. But what we know is that that investor pressure is actually um, increasing. And I see that even 
um, with our companies. I mean, we have um, some of our top shareholders that really want to see it 100% ethical, um, one in particular. And, I, you know, we get asked a lot, Gemma, would we ever consider doing a, a third company or a fourth company with this same model? So it could be with a different asset class. It could be with a different charitable focus. And I get asked a lot, would we ever consider doing one that's 100% ethical? Um, look, I, I think the model will be replicated. It already has been. I mean, HM1 or Hearts and Minds Investment Company was replicated on um, the future gen companies. And we, we probably won't do a third or a fourth company. We get asked a lot. We just want to focus on these two companies and growing them as big as we can and definitely delivering on those investment returns and social returns. Um, but I think you will see something like this in the ethical space and we'd be more than happy to share um, our IP and how we've done it all with whoever wants to do it um, in the future. But, you know, that, that requires a lot of screens, that requires, you know, um, you know, expertise uh, to to ensure that, you know, it, it is 100% ethical because you don't want to be out there marketing something that's not, um, you know, if, if, if the right screens are not in place. That's such a thorough explanation. Thank you. And it's, you're absolutely right. Ethical is a term that uh, has such strong connotations for people, but it means different things to different people. I love using the example of my parents who, uh, apply their own ethical filter to what they buy. Uh, but it's quite funny. It's not somebody else's, right? So no armaments, obviously no tobacco. Uh, they don't like gambling. So nothing in there that has any gambling in it or similar, but they're both very happy drinking alcohol. And so therefore they're fine owning alcohol stocks in their portfolio. So they have their own filters and apply them. It's obviously very difficult when you're a professional to understand which filters are important for people and which aren't. I think also your point about the next 10 years is going to be really interesting because BlackRock, as many people would be aware, announced uh, very significant uh, changes from an ethical perspective to their portfolios and said they were divesting all thermal coal assets at a global level. But when you looked more closely, they, they manage a lot of money where that was not going to occur because they're ETF managers and so there's plenty of thermal coal in the indices that they manage and that was still there. So... It's a, it's a challenging topic for some people. For others, it's something they feel really strongly about and want to see happen. So it's great that you guys have a view on it and manage it pretty closely. I think it was also, Jim, it was pretty significant that I think it was last week, so it's very recent news and you might have seen it yourself, but um, Paradise Investment Management, David Paradise is one of our leading fund managers. And, in fact, um, Paradise is one of our generous uh, fund managers in both companies, as is Cooper Investors. But Paradise actually announced the appointment of a, a you know a senior manager, an ESG manager. So you know they're a leading fund manager. It's going to get the rest of the industry really uh, taking notice. Um, so I, yeah, that's what I mean by sort of I think it's inevitable that it's coming, um, but it's very topical that it, that you know it's getting a lot of airplay. Um, more and more, and you know, I, I do think it's 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 going to move in that direction. In fact, I mean, I remember when we started um, FDG. You know, I was talking to Jeff Wilson about, well, what do you think we could do something ethical one day? And he said, look, one day. He said the problem today is that if we went out and we tried to get a dozen or so boutique fund managers um, in Australia, for instance, who were were hundred percent ethical. Um, investing in what they invested in, 
the performance numbers would be crap. <laughs> so one of the reasons why we've not done it up till now is that reason. But as I said, I think I think that's going to change over time. And I think your parents are not um, unusual. They'd probably be a good fit for FGG. There's a little bit of alcohol in there, as I said, but everything else is, is super clean. <laughs> Sounds like exactly that kind of thing. I think your point about um, performance is really interesting. I um, I wonder whether there is a weight of uh, weight of money argument for ethical to a point where, as more and more professionals are either forced or voluntarily go to a stronger ESG model, those left holding the sin stocks might find themselves you know, holding stuff that's hard to sell, right? If none of the professionals would buy it, then you're in a bit of a difficult situation. Yeah, look, I, I totally agree with that. And I just think it's going to be driven by millennials. I mean, I, I don't know in your experience, but a lot of the millennials I meet, I mean, they're so much more socially aware than I was at that age. Um, and, you know, that it's, it's just going to be demanded, I think, whereas their parents or their grandparents are probably less fussed. I mean, our... It's interesting, we have about 15,000 shareholders across the two companies and the average shareholder, 50% of the shareholder base are self-managed super funds. Um, you know, so they'd be typically a retiree in their 70s and they might own 20 or 30,000 shares in one or both companies. They're less interested or concerned about ESG, um, but interestingly enough, 30% of our shareholder base are high net worths, ultra high net worths, family offices, philanthropic foundations, big charities, they are very interested in ESG. And in some, in, in a lot of cases, it's being driven by millennials in the family. And 20% of our investor base um, are mum and dad investors. You know, there's no minimum um, investment with us. Uh, my mum is a great example. I mean, she's 86. She's probably not so interested in ESG at this stage of her life. But um, she's bought small parcels of shares in each of the companies for her grandkids. And she wants to teach them about investing and capitalism and getting a dividend. But she also likes the fact that the 1% is donated to charity. And she loves the fact that every August, it doesn't matter whether you own 50 shares or 50,000 or 5 million, you get information on the charities that we've chosen in the two cause areas of youth at risk for FGX and youth mental health for FGG. And you can have a say in where um, the donation allocation goes. And obviously, the more shares you own, the more voting power you've got. But she loves sitting down and, you know, reading with the grandkids about what each particular charity has, uh, how they've spent the money since inception and how they're planning on spending the next 12 months, um, the donations. So, you know, it's a it's, she sees it very much as an education tool. I love that story. My um, my mum's... Uh one of the most sort of ESG focused people you'd ever meet. We were sort of the family in the, uh, in the early 80s where we had to drive to the other side of Brisbane where I grew up to put our bottles in a bottle bin because there weren't any local ones and there certainly wasn't a recycling bin at your doorstep. Um, you know, she has always felt very strongly about environmental causes and so on, which was uh, a great way to grow up. I was really lucky. But great segue into the actual charitable side. Can you talk me through, and you've just alluded to it, which charities you choose, how you choose them, and how you keep on top of what contribution they're making? Mm. Well, look, as I mentioned earlier, we we chose um, two cause areas, one for each company. Um, the one for FGX, as I mentioned, is children and youth at risk, so disadvantaged young people. 
And um, that was chosen back in 2014. The, the other cause area is youth mental health. And we're very passionate about them. We're particularly passionate about youth mental health because, as you can probably appreciate, um, it's a cause area that's getting a lot of attention at the moment um, because of the pandemic and also because of the economic impact. I mean, the devastating impact that's having on young people um, and will have over the coming years because of the, the fallout from the economic impact. Um, how we chose that cause area is quite interesting. I... Um, I'd been the CEO of Philanthropy Australia, the peak body for growing philanthropy before 2015. So I wasn't around when um, the board and Jeff chose uh, youth at risk as the initial cause area. And when I came in right on the back of that IPO, um, I was around from, from the outset for FGG. And I said to Jeff and the board, I think this time around, we should choose a cause area that's narrower I think we should choose a cause area we can, where we can make obviously a serious difference, where we can hopefully measure impact um, and importantly, choose one that's chronically underfunded by the private sector, by corporates and philanthropists. And also one where we can hopefully play a leadership role in actually encouraging more donors, philanthropists and corporates to fund in the cause area. And that's why we chose mental health. Um, interesting enough, you know, prior to the pandemic, um, I used to refer to mental health as, you know, the, the health issue of our time. I really believe that it's, a, it's an escalating issue. Um, it's affecting not just young people. Um, there's people that you and I know personally, family members, friends who are, who are suffering, whether it's anxiety, depression, um, through to, you know, bipolar, schizophrenia, um, su suicide, um, you know, more extreme examples um, as well. And we're really committed to those cause areas. I mean, we this year alone, um, we will be donating $10.5 million and those donations will be paid uh, in October. Shareholders um, have just had the chance to vote in August on where that $10.5 million goes. And uh, since um, uh, inception... Uh, the total donation I think we're up to is about 41 million, 41.2 million. So it's a it's an incredibly large figure already um, in six years. Um, what we've done in in each of the cause areas, we've handpicked. I think we've got 12 charities in FGX and uh, eight in FGG in those cause areas, and we've handpicked those. Um, and today we currently have a social impact manager who works with me, who really manages the charitable side of the business to make sure these charities we've, um, you know, we've handpicked are accountable, are transparent, um, that we can measure the impact of where the charitable dollars um, are going. So it's a very serious side of the business. Um, at the end of the day, though, my my, you know, the, the main focus of my work is making sure that, um, you know, we're focused on shareholder engagement, investment returns, um, because unless we're delivering um, those investment returns, obviously the model doesn't work. And we are. I mean, in every time period since we've started, we're outperforming the, the indices, the benchmarks that we measure success against, whether it's the MISCI World Index for the global one or the All Lords Index. And, you know, in the 12 months to 30 June, we've just released our half-year results. Um, you know, the FGX had an outperformance um, of 6%, and FGG had an outperformance of 3.6%. So, 
you know, we're very focused on ensuring that those investment returns are absolutely number one. Um, but also, you know, making sure the charitable side of the business is is well run, um, because you know our plan is to grow the companies to three billion assets. We're currently at one point one billion. Uh, we'd like to grow them to three billion by you know twenty twenty seven or thereabouts, and that would mean an annual donation to charity of thirty million. So you know we're getting up there. We're we're never going to be as big as the Paul Ramsey Foundation, but we ultimately will end up being the second biggest funder of the non-profit sector in Australia after the Paul Ramsey Foundation, other than government. That's amazing. Um, you and I were also discussing prior to this that you know COVID's really affected young people disproportionately. Older people also, you know, who are at home and fearful, um, but young people who can't get work because all of the work that they would ordinarily do is shut down and so on. So the fact that you're supporting charities in that field is incredibly valuable at this point in time more than any other. Yeah, I mean, look, I think we're, you know, we're closely monitoring, you know, the impact on the charities that we support, but also the broader sector. And it is having a devastating impact um, on some. I mean, like all businesses, a lot of them have had to pivot and, and change the way they operate and, and do more services virtually. But, it, but in some cases, you know, it's, it's, it's particularly challenging to actually um, provide those services uh, virtually. So, you know, a lot of these charities as well, you know, they don't have big corpuses, big reserves. So, you know, in a lot of cases, it's very much hand to mouth. And um, it's challenging at the moment to actually go out and secure new donors that you don't already have a relationship with. So, you know, it's important for funders like us to, um, to be helping them where we can. Um, what's exciting with us is that we've managed to increase the donation this year from 9.5 last year to 10.5 million this year, despite, um, uh, you know, you know, what's happened with the economic impact. So the good news is that we've got more money available. And the great thing about our model is that assuming we can grow the assets over time and each year, and that'll be either through organic growth or, or capital raisings. We actually did a capital raising for both companies at the end of 2018. Um, it does mean that that donation to charity will grow. So it's a particularly um, great model for the lucky recipients um, that we have. You just mentioned capital raisings, and this was one question that I'm sure many investors will have uh, because it's an ongoing issue in the market. Just both of your products are LICs currently, and so there is uh, always that potential for a gap between the value of the underlying assets and the actual price that people are willing to pay. Do you manage that closely? Oh, absolutely, Gemma. I mean, you know, that that is something that we're you know, continually um, watching. I mean, from our point of view, you know, you can find with listed investment companies that they can trade at premiums um, and they can trade at discounts um, to net tangible asset value. And it does happen from time to time. I mean, with these two companies in the six years, they've definitely traded consistently at premiums, but they have, interestingly enough, traded at discounts before. And they're currently trading at discounts at the moment. I mean, quite attractive um, discounts. I think one's at about nine, 9% and the other one's at about 15%. Um, and interestingly enough, at the end of June, they were trading at discounts of 17 and 22%. So a key, well, the key goal for us 
going forward is actually to close um, those discounts. But from our point of view, we're we're very happy um, with the performance, the performance numbers, and we really believe that um, they speak for themselves, particularly, um, you know, in the last sort of six, 12 months with all of the volatility. Um, but historically, we probably haven't stressed enough the downside protection and the defensive nature of this portfolio. And what you're going to see us do is, is, is really reinforce that more going forward. And I think the other thing that we're focused on to close those discounts is, is more shareholder engagement, particular initiatives where we've upped the ante. I mean, some businesses have contracted their staff or their teams because of COVID. We've actually gone the other way. Interesting enough, we put on a couple of new comms people um, in March, April this year. And we've got a number of initiatives because when you've got those discounts, what you're trying to do is promote more buying. Um, so we're doing more media, more presentations, um, more investor calls. I'm, I do my own podcast series these days. Um, we've just completed, or, or sorry, we haven't completed yet, but we're, we're near completing a, a virtual roadshow um, that we've done on Zoom for any financial advisors out there, whether they're um, stockbrokers or financial planners or other wealth advisors. And, um, you know, it's been a great success and it is helping us to actually um, close those discounts. But, you know, what we're focused on is attracting new longer term shareholders who are drawn to that dual purpose and see us as a leading example of, of impact investing. And also, I think from our perspective, um, it is a great deal for an investor because the investor is getting access to some of the best fund managers, whether it's, I don't know, Cooper Investors, Paradise, Magellan, Caledonia, Regal, um, Wilson Asset Management, without paying any fees. Um, and if you think about the foregone fees since inception six years ago, I think a about $56.5 million. Um, and the donation to charity, as I said um, earlier, is uh, 40 41 million. So, you know, the you can see the savings there to shareholders because the the fees foregone well and truly outweigh um, the the actual donation to charity. Yeah, it's a brilliant brilliant model as an individual. So, you know, for an investor who's listening to this, you you know, you would ordinarily be paying well over one percent to access Magellan, and you would be paying that to them directly. Whereas in this scenario, it's one percent of the assets and it goes to charity. It'll make you feel good while you're doing it. Louise, you mentioned the wonderful uh, comms work that you're doing. I mean, you have a podcast, you produce a lot of great content and it's using the sort of stable of talent that you have. So the managers and, uh, and their teams uh, who can keep investors up to date. So how do people go to your website, find out more about what you're doing? Yeah, well, look, Gemma, it's pretty easy. I mean, the website is futuregeninvest.com.au. So I'd encourage everyone to go to that. You also can um, subscribe to any updates that we have. And I think that's info at futuregeninvest.com.au. But we do things like a monthly investment report for our shareholders. We do a monthly newsletter, which provides all sorts of interesting updates from our fund managers and also our charities. Um, the podcast series um, is fairly new. We started that at the start of um, covid and I, I have a lot of fun doing that. I've, I've interviewed people like David Gonski, um, Joe Hockey, Anna Bly. In fact, um, last week I interviewed Peter Morgan, um, the star 
you know, fund manager in the 90s and, and um, you know, the first half of the 2000s. And uh, I think that's actually going to be written up in the AFR tomorrow. So, um, you know, there's some really interesting content that we're developing. And, and what we're trying to do is really lift the brand and the profile of Future Generation because what I've been amazed about in the six years is how low the awareness is. You know, people love the model, um, but they're not aware of it. And once they hear about it, they say, wow, you, that's interesting. And also when we tell people that, you know, it's not like Magellan is managing this money in a special fund, you know, pro bono or without charging fees. This is, you know, it's being managed in the Magellan Global Fund. So it's their main fund where we're probably the only client in there that's not paying a fee. So it really means um, that um, the team there at Magellan are performing to the, the best of their ability for the benefit of all clients. We just happen to be one that's not paying any fees. It's a great model and I'm sure a lot of people will want to take a close look at it. Louise Walsh from Future Generation, thank you so much for joining us today. Pleasure, Gemma. Uh, really appreciate the opportunity to have a chat. Thank you so much for listening. We love having you on. I will say if you are interested in impact investing, there is also one other opportunity you might like to take a look at. NAB Trade will be hosting its annual charity trading day later this year and we donate all brokerage on the day to a chosen charity. So much like the impact investing that Louise was talking about, you can buy whatever you like. We don't judge. Uh, and all of the brokerage that you would ordinarily pay on that day will go to charity uh, rather than to the business. So we love people participating in that. For the podcast listeners, we love you so much for tuning in every fortnight. If you have any feedback or questions, please just email us at yourwealth@nab.com.au. I look forward to talking to you again soon. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for listening to Your Wealth with Gemma Dale. To stay up to date, please subscribe to this podcast series or email us at yourwealth at nab.com.au. Please note that any advice provided in this podcast has been prepared without taking into account your objectives, financial circumstances or needs. Before acting, you should consider the appropriateness of the information. To find out more, please visit nab.com.au.